The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am your host, Dan Bespris, and a very pleasant Memorial Day to all of you, whatever you might be doing on this day. We, of course, thank those who made the ultimate sacrifice and uh, have ourselves a little barbecue. That's seeming to be the, the path there. So hope everybody out there is having a nice Memorial Day. I know I have. Um... Podcast going a little bit later today. Hope you guys don't mind. We're we're in off season mode. This is week three of the fantasy basketball off season, and we've been deep diving on a few interesting little topics. Friday we spent most of the show talking about the actual playoffs, and I thought we could just recap a little bit of what's gone on over the last couple of days in that extent. But because this show's coming out later in the day, I don't think we need to do the betting dive. That we've been sort of slipping in the first five to ten minutes most shows since the playoffs got started because the first one's actually going to be going. Philly, Washington, that'll be underway by the time most, if not all of you guys, are listening to this particular podcast. So with that, of course, Philly going for the sweep. That uh, series might be over by the time you listen to this show. And then Utah currently leading Memphis two games to one after winning the second game in Utah and then the first game in Memphis. Once again, shout out to our buddies over at Hoopball Grizz, doing a marvelous job of covering the Grizzlies during their playoff run with uh, in-season media access, able to ask questions and and really be a part of it. So guys, just keep dominating over there. Uh, And that one, by the way, if you're interested in betting stuff, Utah is favored by 5.5 with a total of 225 and change. And it just keeps going up. That last ball game, by the way, was 232 was the final score. The line was Utah by five and a half. And by all accounts, actually, it was a, it was a game that the Grizzlies had opportunities to win. They just couldn't shoot the ball. Memphis, uh, 43% from the field on 100 field goal attempts. And then, of course, the big free throw discrepancy as well. So I see a very reasonable angle to say, well, the Grizzlies could play better in this ball game, but I also feel like maybe Utah's beginning to figure things out a little bit. Um, as pace goes, it's still pretty fast. They're still moving along at a pretty good clip. Memphis underachieved by about five points. Utah overachieved uh, by about 15, thanks to their great shooting and their three-point numbers. So by pace, this game should probably squeeze under the mark, but I also feel like the way that Memphis actually wins or competes in these ball games is by driving up the score and getting buckets almost every time down. So I think I, in terms of the ball game tonight, if you're listening to this beforehand, I think I like the Grizzlies catching five and a half. I think it's a pretty good number, uh, but I do think this is a pretty competitive ball game. So for whatever that's worth elsewhere around the NBA playoffs. Oh, by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D A N B E S B R I S for whatever that's worth. Not much, I guess uh, on Twitter. Hoopball is hoop-ball.com. Cool stuff coming out on the premium side, even here during the fantasy offseason. Hits and misses as we look at a season in review. They'll be having a uh, way-too-early rank board for next season for premium subs as well. And, of course, the Discord is always rumbling along. If anybody has any questions or just wants to talk shop, that's a cool place to do so. 
at Hoopball Fantasy is the Twitter feed for Hoopball. Uh, currently, as the different series stand, Milwaukee swept Miami 120-103, the final uh, game in that series. So that one is done. Bucks four games to none. Miami, who had themselves that wild bubble run last year, uh, not necessarily exposed, but it's also, again, kind of a stark reminder of how different the bubble was and how this season just wasn't really right for teams that had to go ultra deep into the bubble. They just didn't succeed whether it was the short layoff and then the quick season or whatever it was, the Heat were sort of the poster boy for that as a club that just wanted to be there more. And now the Bucks, they're the team that wants to be there more. They're driving angry to take a term from Groundhog Day. Bryn Forbes, 22 points with no Dante DiVincenzo. He's out for a while. Giannis, 2012 and 15. I mean, again, the Heat actually do a really good job with Giannis. But there were just too many other things going on, and the Bucks' defense was better this time around, outside of the bubble. So they had Miami's number. Uh, I had Bucks to win that series in five or six games, and I was off on that card. But I did think the Bucks were going to win, and I thought they were actually a little bit of a value, as you may recall from our show, prior to the playoffs starting, largely because they were a, kind of an undervalued or an underrated three-seed because of what Miami did to them last year. And that was the whole, hey, do we believe the Bucks have figured things out? I don't know if we knew if we did enough to get in on them, but I didn't think Miami was that much of a value at plus whatever it was, like 210 for a six seed with a much worse record and a much worse roster. That was all built off of what we saw in the bubble last year, and so that was a little bit lopsided. And the Bucks advanced to the second round of the playoffs. Portland, in their game on Saturday, beat the Nuggets to even up that series at two games apiece. They'll play again tomorrow uh, with a series tied to two in Denver. Nuggets favored by one and a half. That series really has bounced around quite a bit, and it seems to rest a bit on, well, Nikola Jokic finally had a human game in their last one. I'm inclined to believe he's better in the next ball game. Denver shot 34%. They just had an off offensive night. I mean, Dame wasn't good either. And so now we finally had a lower scoring game as well. So that one finished at 210 points. You guys know I like to sort of fade what the pace is telling us a lot of times. And, uh, you know, for Portland, they actually overachieved thanks to the obscenely low turnover number. But Denver was way under the mark of where they were expected to be. But it's also possible that these series are just kind of slowing down a little bit. You know, Portland, they should have probably in the neighborhood about 103 or so, they overachieved by about a dozen points. Denver underachieved by even more than that. They were uh, under the mark by like 17. So this one was about six or seven points under the expected pace. That actually did leave a pretty good wiggle room there. Like 216-ish to 17. So that number's going to be adjusted down for tomorrow. It was 228 in the last one. It's down to 226 in this one. Uh, I'm still thinking there's some room on the under. You guys knew I was basically just going to keep going back to the well on unders in that series because the pace was not reflective of what the final scores were indicating. And I think we're probably seeing now a bit of a bounce back on that one. Uh, what else happened over the weekend? Um, Philly, Washington, but that game's about to be going now anyway. And then yesterday on Sunday, the Hawks went up three games to one on the Knicks. That was a, we were big on the Hawks. That was one of the, stronger series. In fact, I think it was my strongest series play. I tweeted it out. Uh, I put it on that first Friday podcast going into the playoffs because the Knicks were just overrated. Sorry, Knicks fans. You had a great season, 
But the big advantage that the Knicks had during the regular season, which was they just played harder than other teams, that doesn't exist in the playoffs. So to say the Knicks and the Hawks, you look at the record, they looked like a really evenly matched situation. But Atlanta missed more games. Players missed a ton of games for the Hawks this year. They were The Knicks were uh, relatively healthy. I know they traded for Derrick Rose, and then he missed a bunch of time, and Burks missed some games at the beginning of the year. But Julius Randle was there, and he played ridiculous minutes. I mean, he was playing 38, 39 minutes in a lot of their regular season games. So this was something we talked about during that pre-playoff show. Trey Young, who averaged whatever the hell it was this year. Trey Young averaged like 33 minutes a game this season. Julius Randle averaged like 38. So having your stars in on the Hawks side, and they didn't need him in this ball game, but when the games were tighter, those guys are going to get more run. So the big advantage the Knicks had was wiped out by the fact that their opponents now are going to be playing just as hard. Also, I watched a lot of Hawks games late in the year because I was trying to figure out what this team really was, and they're actually a lot better defensively than people give them credit for. They're pretty good. I know the Knicks are tad anemic on offense, but the Hawks are actually better on defense than people were willing to admit. They didn't be able to change that team. I was way down on Atlanta early this year, and McMillan totally changed them. Massive credit. I had the Hawks as an under on the season, and it looked like I was spot on until their coaching change changed everything. So anyway, they go back to New York, and you know, the question arises, do the Knicks have any kind of answer? That game isn't until Wednesday, so put a little bit of downtime. Knicks are favored by one and a half, total of 208. Uh, that last ball game had a total of 209, and it actually came down a little bit, uh, despite the fact that, that last game actually ended right at 209. The uh, pace is relatively accurate. Um, expectation, I think, is that this game is probably going to end somewhere around 209. I think that number's pretty tight to it. And then the question really is, do you think the Knicks can grab one, or can the Hawks stay focused in enough to get that one on the road? I would probably lean to the Knicks' direction, but I'm obviously likely leaving that game alone, I and mean, we can talk more about that as we get there on uh, Wednesday. Phoenix beat LA 192 on Sunday. Uh, easy cover for them with no Anthony Davis, who's also expected to miss their next ball game with a grade one groin strain. Uh, sure, they're hoping to have him back later in the series. KCP sounds like he might be back for game five in Phoenix. I mean, that's, that's a huge deal. Chris Paul also beginning to look more like himself. So the injury bug swinging in a huge way, and the Suns are a five-point home favorite now because of the Chris Paul looking healthy and AD being out situation. Um, it's still going to be a slow ball game. Lakers are going to really want to grind this thing out because one of their big edges that they could have had was, well, defensively, this is going to hurt L.A., uh, but they're not going to outscore Phoenix without Anthony Davis on the floor. So, um, you know, that total's come all the way down to 207. That's just been working its way down since the series began. We're probably wiping out most of the value at that point. I don't think the Lakers get creamed in this ballgame. They figured some stuff out late that largely involved playing LeBron at the four. That seemed to move some bodies around. Marcus Gasol at the five, Trez at the five, just things to change up how Phoenix was able to defend stuff. But it's going to be a task for the Lakers, and I don't think I'm touching that game at all. I think I'd rather leave that thing alone. Brooklyn beat Boston 141-126. Of course, Kyrie Irving and the logo becoming more of the story. 
But uh, we'll go ahead and we'll just dodge that stuff because whatever. Twitter Twitter can solve that problem for us. Book is favored by 12 and a half. And that's, wow, that's a big, that's a big number. Do the Celtics have the heart to keep this thing going? Nope. But do they have the heart to keep it within 12 and a half? Meh. I don't know. That was a series where I think you just sort of keep riding the over because neither team is all that interested in slowing it down. Boston, you know, as good as Jason Tatum has been in a few of these games, they just don't have the firepower, and that's what we said from the outset. They can't keep up. Certainly not when the Nets are shooting 58%. That was wild. And so many free throws in that game. It might now finally be where the total is high enough that you might look back at the other side. 231.5 is a really big number. That's up three from the last ballgame. And then the Clippers evened it up. Both those teams have not won at home. Dallas won both games in L.A. Clippers won both games in Dallas. Luka hurt his shoulder. And, I mean, that's the series if Luka's not healthy. But we'll kind of have to wait and see. I would be hesitant to get down on it until we have a really good report on Doncic and how he's feeling. Clippers currently favored by seven, total of 217.5. If Luka's not healthy, then the Clippers can hold the Mavs to 80-some-odd points because he's their everything. He's the whole engine. And they just had nothing without him. So uh, we're not going to get involved in talking about that ballgame yet because we need more data. We need more information. Um, Let's dive into some of the fantasy stuff. We've been sort of saving it for today. And, of course, the whole way through, I kind of forgot today was Memorial Day. But we're going to dive into it anyway and just honestly just kind of hope that enough of you guys are listening on Memorial Day to where all of this hard work is going to be worth something. And what we were talking about for today's show is the value of a top two seed in your head-to-head league. And it really does stem or grow into a number of our other main tenets here on Fantasy NBA Today. One of which we talked about last week, which is don't draft injured players, DDIP. And uh, also of that same vein, getting off to a quick start. It all kind of rolls. We didn't do a show on that one yet but it all kind of rolls into the same discussion which is why do we want a quick start why don't we want injured players to start the year and it's because you want to get to this critical point it's even it's an even bigger deal in head-to-head than it is in roto uh because you can make up ground in roto and you can do crazy things at the end of the year and you know you don't have moves caps and things of that nature for the most part but in head-to-head the reason to get off to a fast start is multifaceted for one it's a path towards the top two seed and that's a pretty obvious one that we're going to break the math down on either later today or tomorrow depending on as we talk about this stuff i'm thinking maybe we need to do a little bit more on the other side of this and the other side of it is not the other side i guess it's part of the same side the other half of the same story is In addition to wanting one of those top two seeds, getting off to a quick start allows you to... It allows you to have a ton of freedom from the halfway point in your head-to-head league. And those freedoms... And this is a little bit less of a math discussion, but it does sort of creep into the stuff we talked about last week, which is how long you can hold an injured guy. If you're off to a good start, and you're two months into your fantasy season or three months into your fantasy season or the trade deadline or whatever, all-star break, 
and you're in first place or second place, it gives you the opportunity to stash guys, if you can sort of weather a couple of small losses, to maybe have a really key player for your fantasy playoffs. Let's say everybody abides by the rules we talked about last week, and somebody had to drop, oh, I don't know, somebody had to drop a top 45, top 50 guy because they were going to miss seven or eight weeks. As we talked about on shows, that's basically your coin flip. You're probably better off dropping if you're in any kind of battle in your league. But, you know, what if you're uh, two months in and you're in first place by four or five games and second place is ahead of third by another three or four, so you've got like a nine-game cushion over falling out of a top two seed. You could pull one of those, I'm going to call them sad drops for as long as we're talking about this stuff. You could pull one of those sad drops and stash them because you have that cushion. You can hold your own injured guys. If you have someone who's right on that cut line and you have that cushion, you could err more towards hanging on to them because you don't have to win every single week from that point forward. It gives you so many options getting off to a quick start in terms of what you do with your team. Getting off to a quick start. If you're cruising along in first or second place, you can actually start to look at playoff schedules by midseason. A lot of teams draft that way. I think that's a bit that's a bit much for me because you just don't know what a player is going to do during an entire regular season. If you eliminate a number of players because their playoff schedule is not that great, or you laser in on guys on draft night because their playoff schedule is great, you just don't know. Like, I don't have the thing in front of me because I didn't think it was going to be part of our discussion today. But just looking back at this most recent season, think of a player who had a pretty good playoff schedule and just missed a few games in there. I think of Kristaps Porzingis is probably a pretty good example of that, although we kind of knew he was going to sit out back-to-backs. But that's a dude who had a five-game week, and folks might have drafted him thinking, sweet, five games. Or Shea, there you go. There's your way better example. Shea Gilgis-Alexander was on an OKC team that after some... Uh, postponements, ended up with a five-game week during the fantasy playoffs. So a lot of folks were like, hell yeah, I'm going to go get me some Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And then he missed all of them because they sat him down with a month and a half to go in the year. So there's all these weird things that get in the way of targeting playoff schedules. But once you're three months into the season, you probably have a better idea. I mean, three months into the season, we started to say, oh crap, OKC is winning too many games. What are they going to do about this? And Shea started sitting out back-to-backs. And then all of a sudden, he was just gone. And you might have a better feel for who that's going to happen to, as opposed to draft night, where we were like, wow, what the hell is OKC going to do this year? Are they going into a full tank? They got Al Horford. They got Shea. They might actually be okay. And they were, actually. They were pretty good for the first three months. And then they had to pull the plug on it. They really... Really ugly tank job, by the way. I know they had to do it, but jeez. That was brazen. Nobody cared, blah, 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 because it was OKC. I mean, come on. That was bad. At least be competitive and then lose. Lose by seven. Don't lose by 35 every night. That's rough. It's bad for the players. It's bad for the league. Whatever. Not Again, not not really the main point of today's podcast. So... Point of all of this is, you have, by getting off to a fast start, and, and then we don't need to get big time into the math on this, just use the things we talked about 
on stashes and injured players and apply that here. By, but by midseason, if you're out in first place, if you've gotten off to a really good start and you've been pretty ruthless to that point, you haven't taken many zeros, you're just making sure that you're building up those wins, you can get wild. You can get wild at that point. You could do something like trade for Anthony Davis and hope for a wild playoff push. You could do something insane like pick up D'Angelo Russell and hope he's back for a playoff push. Like, And that's talking about players that from this most recent season, these are things you should not be doing if your team is in any sort of competitive fight. But if you got that fat cushion because you got off to a great start, because you were ruthless, because you took every week hyper-seriously because you streamed two roster slots even on the first week of the season. This gives you that freedom. By the way, streaming is going to have its own discussion on this podcast as well. We're going to get a little bit more on that. We did a lot of that chat during the actual fantasy playoffs, but there's a streaming discussion to be had during the fantasy regular season also. But let's get into, and this is this is pretty simple math, This is like the first couple weeks of taking a probability class in high school or college, but we're going to do it anyway, and it's why is getting a top two seed so important? Well, on its face, it's a pretty easy argument. You don't have to play in as many playoff rounds as the other four seeds, even if there isn't any kind of prize for first or second place during your league's regular season. Let's, Let's say the regular season has no bearing on how the money goes. It's just playoffs and for most head-to-head leagues it's like a 75-25 or 80-20 split for first and second place the teams that make the finals get cash the first place team gets a lot more than the second place team that's how a lot of head-to-head leagues go some even go as deep as third place but not many not many most teams once they lose in the playoffs they're just sort of locked out so let's just assume it's first and second place that actually take money in the actual playoffs when it's all said and done so the teams that make the finals If, and here's where we get into the very simple probability of it, if you said that all six teams were a coin flip, meaning every single one of those teams was the exact same power rank, first place was the same as sixth place once they hit the playoffs. They had the exact same probability of winning any weekly matchup. Well, sixth place team has to win first round, second round, and third round to win the playoffs same with the fifth place team and fourth and third so by that account each one of those four teams has a one quarter or excuse me a one eighth chance to win the league one out of eight half times a half times a half because it's a coin flip it's like any of those teams flipping heads three times in a row it's got to go h h h That's a one-eighth chance that it comes up like that. And for the top two seeds, because they only have to play two weeks, they're only flipping a coin twice. They only got to go heads-heads. That's a half times a half. That's a quarter each. So each of the top two teams in that instance would have a 25% chance of winning the league, and each of the next four teams would have a 12.5% chance to win the league. So just on that, very simple remedial probability alone by getting a top two seed you have a two times higher chance you have double the chance to win your league as a third fourth fifth or sixth league 
place team. But I would argue that it's not a vacuum, that it's not a coin flip, that the teams in most leagues end up at the end of the regular season ranked pretty close to the order that, of, of power that they are. And I've actually put this, this, uh, this poll on Twitter before, and I don't have the results in front of me because I think we did it like a full year ago when I was trying to figure out how to split money for uh, COVID head-to-head shortened seasons that were actually like starting the playoffs. I was like, well, first and second place, they tended to win the league more than the 25% vacuum would suggest. It was like first place won it like 35% of the time, second place won it like about a quarter. So that was pretty close to accurate. And then third place was more than fourth, more than fifth, and so on and so forth. And then fifth and sixth, it was like fourth, fifth, and sixth, honestly. Those two, those teams really didn't win it all that much. So like if you roll all of those together, it's going to be around 100% because there was we didn't have a, a thousand we didn't have tens of thousands of people sampling themselves in this thing we had a you know a few hundred so it wasn't going to come out perfectly round but between first and second place it was like 70% instead of 50 i think when it it was like 40 for first and 30 for second or something like that and then it was 30 for the other four combined but even among those it was like 18 for third place and then it was like 6 4 and 2 or something super low for 4th, 5th, and 6th, or something like that. I don't have that exactly right, because I don't have those numbers in front of me. But that was telling us, and I thought that data was actually really interesting, that data was confirming that 1st and 2nd place teams were better than the other four teams in a fantasy playoffs. And the reason that's important is, well, you know, you can sort of uh, reverse engineer the numbers on this thing. But if we assume that that poll is actually more accurate than our remedial probability that we just did a minute ago on the podcast, then that means that getting a top two seed is it's actually creating a larger than 25% chance for those top two teams. Now, I would argue that because we didn't have tens of thousands of teams and because there's so many different types of leagues out there, we can't just go straight off the poll results either. Because I think most of us, recording and or listening to this fantasy podcast, are probably in more competitive leagues where I would venture to guess that the first, second, third, fourth place teams, those are probably bunched more tightly than your average, say, average fantasy league, where the first place team probably is a lot better than the other ones. There might be that guy that might be you. I don't know. Maybe you're in kind of a clunky fantasy league where you're just beating the hell out of people because you're taking it way seriously and they're not. And that's fine. I mean, that's the, the whole point of getting a large poll sample size is that balances out with the other ones. But that's why I don't think you can just take the poll results and say, oh, well, cool. Like being in first place, you have a 40% chance to win your league. Because based on what we've talked about, I know we're circuitous logic here. A first-place team maybe got there partially because they were very good, but also partially because they were ruthless and because they streamed. So I believe that that first-place team in a super competitive league doing all of those things probably is only a little bit better than the second-place team, which is only a little bit better than the third-place team, and so on and so forth down the line. So I would argue that in a super competitive league, it is probably closer to a coin flip. 
Which, by the way, I think actually speaks to the necessity for getting first or second place anyway. Because I believe in those poll results, if we had broken it down, this is, this is me having watched a lot of fantasy basketball leagues over the years. I don't think that those top two seeds were winning in a lot of the poll categories 70% of the time because they got the buy. I think that a lot of the time in those less serious leagues, the top couple of teams are just juggernauts. And you could take away their bye week and they'd probably still smash the competition. It wouldn't be as much because you remove some of the luck factor. You know, one of a very, very good team could still lose its top two players come fantasy playoff week. Um, but in a competitive league, I actually think that the jump is probably bigger. And we'll probably want to do some polls and get some data on this. And what we'll be comparing when we do so is the following. And this is going to rely a little bit on self-assessment from people. But in a hyper-competitive fantasy league, I'd like to know exactly how many first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth place teams won their leagues. And in a less competitive fantasy league, I'd also like to know how many first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth place teams won their head-to-head league. I would bet that the number of first and second place teams to win the league is higher in an average, a less competitive fantasy league. I say that because I think there's probably just going to be a bigger gap. There are going to be the few teams that are just way, way better than the others, where in a competitive league, you know, third or second, second, third place, those, those two teams might be about the same. But I think the conclusion, what we'll be able to draw from that, is getting that first round by is the reason why in competitive leagues the top two seeds tend to win whatever percentage of the time they do because if you put that if you got rid of the buy and those teams aren't that much better than the third fourth fifth and sixth place clubs their probability now drops from 25 percent closer to 12 and a half might be a little higher they might be a little bit better than the other teams but i don't think it's by that much and the reason they get that massive probability bump is because of the bye week. Also, if you're in a league with head-to-head settings like the one we discussed before, second place also takes home some money. So it's never going to be a full coin flip because of one thing that you can't really measure mathematically. And that thing is, a team with a first-round playoff buy basically gets double the roster moves for the semifinal week as the team it's playing against. And that's not always going to be the case because let's say a third-place team is just beaten up on a sixth-place team and maybe they don't need to use all four of their weekly moves in the first round of the playoffs. So, okay, they save a couple for that last Sunday and they use those to set up the following semifinal week. But the team with the bye, they've got the four moves from the bye week and four moves of the semifinal week. So they could really stream three or four roster slots or more if you're long streaming, and you end up with just a massive games played advantage that's often impossible to overcome. That's what happened to me. 
I actually think I probably had the better team in my semifinal matchup. But I was the three seed. I was playing the two seed. And the two seed was able to load up on Mavericks and Thunder and Raptors and teams with five game weeks. And by the end of it, I was at an eight game disadvantage. And I still won some counting stats. I still won points. I still won three pointers. But I had no prayer in things like steals where, you know, like if I had the best steals guys in the NBA, I might have had a shot at that. But I had a bunch of very average steals guys that, you know, I won that category probably about half the time during the fantasy regular season. But there was no prayer that I was going to win it at an eight game disadvantage. It's a freaking wonder I won any of the counting stats. I just happened to have a team that was built to score a lot. But I lost rebounds, I lost assists, I lost steals, I lost blocks. It's really hard to win when your opponent is getting 13, 14, 15, 20% more games than you. Conversely, I could have phrased that in a much more positive light, it's really easy to win when you can use eight roster moves to your opponent using four. And here's another thing. And I've been on the wrong end of this one very recently as well. If you're on that team that had to play a first-round matchup, you might have to use some of your only four weekly roster moves to move out from injured guys. So you might end up with, like, two roster moves to try to stream during your playoff week. Uh, while whoever had the first-round buy... I mean, they could have been setting this up for weeks if they were in a cushy position. They could have they could have gone it two weeks earlier. They might have all eight moves to move healthy guys on and off the roster and really maximize games played. They might not have to use any uninjured players other than ones that happened during that semifinal matchup. So, unfortunately, we can't really quantify that in a way that we were able to quantify how long to hold an injured player or probability of winning based on coin flips during the playoffs, but that's a really, really big deal to get. I mean, think of it this way. If you just assumed that the two teams were made up of all of the of, of league average, that's not fair, fantasy average players, which, as we've talked about, is somewhere in the uh, 75 to 80 range most seasons. I think this year... The perfectly average fantasy contributor was Jeremy Grant at number 75. So if you just assumed a team was all Jeremy Grants, the one getting eight extra Jeremy Grant games in a playoff series uh, is going to win. And it doesn't quite work that way, but that's a good way to think about it in your mind. Assume that every game played is a fantasy league average amount the dude who has more, or gal, that has more games played is going to win. In fact, that dude is probably going to beat the team uh, that even had uh, like an average player performance of a round and a round and a half better with eight extra games. It's, it's pretty much impossible to quantify other than to just like pick a bunch of guys and try doing it head to head and say, oh, well, like... Kelly Olynyk was number 62, so what if you had 
45 Kelly Olynyk's or 53 Jeremy Grant's, who was number 75. And then you just add them up. And, you know, Grant would win uh, points and assists and blocks. And he'd lose turnovers. And he wins three-pointers. I've lost track of how many that is. But I think you're at a point now where, like, steals would probably be pretty close there. In this case, I think Olenek would have won those. And then, what? Percentages? I don't know. I mean, that's going to depend heavily on what player you take. If you call each of the percentages kind of a coin flip in that instance, then, again, the team with with eight fewer games basically needs to win both percentages to get to five categories. Not every time, but if you just picked random players and put them against one another at different junctures like that, hey, what if I had the team that's about a round worse on average? That's where you get to. And so let's pause that for now. Uh, because I don't know that all of you are even going to listen to this Memorial Day episode, and I sort of don't want to blow this entire discussion on a, a holiday. Uh, and tomorrow we'll pick up uh, sort of where we left off. We'll do a little bit of a rehash just to make sure everybody that, that missed this show is up to speed. But we'll dive into a little bit on, on some more of the numbers here. But this is part of why you just need to get off to a quick start in your fantasy head-to-head league. And I think it's also why we need to be more ruthless. Because the poll numbers tell you, if you're ruthless and you get from fourth place up to second or first place, your chances of winning your league probably go up by more than two times. It's probably more like three or four times better. And the bye week is just one little part of it. All right, friends, we'll talk some playoffs again on tomorrow's show. We'll dive a little bit more into some of this good stuff, and we'll just keep working our way through all the things we've learned playing fantasy sports this year and for... 20-some-odd years at this point. I'm Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today. Tomorrow, we will tell you more about our sponsors. Today, it's a holiday. Sponsor-free. Enjoy the night. See you then. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.